We are beginning a new series entitled Equipped. The Gospels contain the teachings of Jesus like the Sermon on the Mount and uh, his many parables, and there are lessons to be learned from what Jesus said. However, the Gospels contain much more than simply what Jesus taught. There were lessons to be learned from what Jesus did. There were values and character traits and instincts and methods that Jesus wanted to instill in his disciples. And he didn't instill them just in what he said and taught. He instilled them through experiences that he created for them. There were things that Jesus wanted his disciples to experience so that they would be equipped for their future ministry. Jesus performed miracles in their presence. Jesus gave them tasks to accomplish. Jesus would even do things like, hey, let's go climb that mountain over there. Um, in these experiences, Jesus was equipping them for the future. Uh, one of our directives here at TFRC is to be future-focused, where we continually adapt to engage every generation. Jesus still puts his disciples through experiences to equip them for the future. And he does that for us. We can all look back in our lives and see how things from our past have prepared us for the present. And so it makes sense that things happening to us now are preparing us for the future. And so in this series, we will revisit some of these experiences from the Gospels and look for the value, the character trait, the instinct, the method that Jesus was instilling in those first disciples to equip them for the future ministry and be challenged to adopt those things for ourselves, assuming that they will equip us for whatever God has for us next. Uh, scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 9, verses 10 to 17. You can turn there in your Bibles. You can look it up on your phones. Luke is the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Uh, this is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, one of Jesus' best-known miracles. The passage says it was 5,000 men, so it didn't count the women and children, which means Jesus actually fed a lot more than 5,000. Um, there is a lesson to be learned in this miracle, a lesson that has nothing to do with food. It's a valuable lesson to remember whenever God acts in our lives, and God is always acting in our lives. So when God works in us, and God works around us, what are the implications for us. Uh, our scripture reader is Elizabeth Jones, and so Elizabeth, go and make your way up to the podium. As she does, I'm going to ask if you're able, please stand and face the center of the room. Uh, we stand because we believe this is the very Word of God, and we read from the center of the room to remind us that scripture is to be central in our lives. And so, Elizabeth, whenever you are ready, please read from Luke chapter 9, verses 10 to 17. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew to, by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, 
Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Elizabeth, thank you very much. You may be seated. The uh, summer that after I graduated from high school, my dad had me help with uh, construction work on some houses he was having built. Now his motivation was not cheap labor. He wanted me to learn a few skills that he thought would be valuable for me to have. Now, these homes were being built in Palm Desert, California. Have you ever been to Palm Desert, California? Okay, um, again, it was summer. In Palm Desert, California, in the summer, it easily gets to between 100 and 110 degrees. And it's a high desert climate, uh, similar to here in the sense that, you know how the wind gets really bad here in the spring? Uh, most afternoons in Palm Desert, California, in the summer, you would get wind like that. Um, so, and when I graduated from high school, I was not the behemoth of a man that stands before you here today, okay? I, was, I weighed like 130 pounds. I was not that strong at all. Uh, needless to say, I wasn't very helpful on the construction site. You know, they tried to teach me how to frame, how to measure and cut and use a nail gun. That did not work. Uh, and so eventually, they just had me do grunt work, you know, haul wood around and clean up the site and uh, throw away excess materials. And so I did that for an entire summer in the Palm Desert heat and wind. Now. My dad wanted to instill a few practical skills in me. That didn't happen. Um, what he did instill in me, though, was motivation. <laughs> motivation to do well in college because I knew I would never make it in construction or any other job that required significant physical labor. So I went into college that fall motivated to do well. And when I graduated with my bachelor's degree in communication, I graduated with high honors because of the lesson learned that first summer out of high school. I was motivated. Um, and so even though I was a disaster on the construction site, that was a summer of what I would call wonderful work. Now, Jesus feeding the 5,000 is wonderful work for a different reason. It's wonderful work because it was a miracle. And in the Bible, before any miracle can be done, well, there must be a need. Every miracle meets a need, or what I'm just going to call the want. I'm going to verses 10 to 13 of chapter 9 that Elizabeth just read. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. And he replied, you give them something to eat. And they answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. There is always something, right? That's a common phrase whenever a new challenge comes our way, there's always something. A phrase we use when something goes wrong, there's always something. 
Um, right before this passage, Jesus had sent his, disciples, his apostles out on their first missionary journey where they preached and healed the sick and cast out demons. And then they returned and reported to Jesus what they had done. And so Jesus um, then wants to get away with them. Um, maybe to debrief more about what they experienced or maybe just to rest for a little while. And so they withdraw to a little village on the Sea of Galilee called Bethsaida. But the crowds find out that Jesus is around and they find him. So, so much for getting away. But Jesus teaches the crowd and Jesus even heals some in the crowd. And now the crowd needs something to eat. There is always something, right? Uh, this last week, my Toyota Camry needed to have the oil changed, needed to fix the skid plate, and now I have a crack in my windshield. I'm going to fix that this week. Uh, it snowed last week, so, you know, I had to shovel them, lay down some salt, and now it's warming up, which means it's time to start thinking about spring planting, and I still have outside Christmas decorations to take down. There is always something, right? Um, when it comes to household chores, there are dishes to do and laundry and vacuuming and dusting. And then when you do all that, you got to do it all again. Or when it comes to yard work, you mow the lawn, uh, you pull weeds, you trim trees. And when you do all that, you got to do it all again. There's always something, right? And then the world around us, whether there's economic worries with housing prices or supply chain issues or inflation or health concerns with heart disease, cancer or COVID or international concerns, whether it's Iraq or the Taliban or ISIS or now it's Russia and Ukraine, there's always something, right? There is always something that we have to deal with. And Jesus captures this truth in one simple sentence about the poor, where he says in Matthew 26, the poor you will always have with you. There's always something. And most of the time, it's mundane, routine things that we can handle. And while we always need God to act in our lives, there are times when we get overwhelmed. And the need for God to act is so great that we actually call out to him. And then God acts, sometimes miraculously, and sometimes his provisions come in the form of, you know, everyday happenings. But regardless, when God acts, you know, what does that mean for us? What are we supposed to do next? Well, yes, we should be thankful and joyful. You know, we have health issues and we're healed. We need a job and we get one. You know, we always need God to come through for us. And what do we do? when God performs a wonderful work in whatever form it may come in. Because there is always something, right? So Jesus looks at the hungry crowd and he decides that he will feed them. And so he performs a wonder. Wonders, miracles, is what the Bible is best known for. Turning the Nile River to blood or splitting the Red Sea or uh, bread from heaven, or surviving the fiery furnace, or healing the blind, the deaf, the mute, rising from the dead. Feeding the 5,000 is another wonder. Going back to the passage, verses 16 and 17. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. And then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up the 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Feeding the 5,000 
with five loaves of bread and two fish, well, that's impossible. Yet we believe it happened. Here at TFRC, we have people who have miraculously survived horrible accidents. We've had people healed in ways doctors cannot explain. We've even had people have angelic encounters. And we celebrate these miracles. They bring great joy. And even when God's action in our lives takes the form of everyday happenings, well, we celebrate those moments. They too bring great joy. Celebration, joy, thankfulness. They are all a part of wonder, of miracles, of God's acting. But there's another part of the wonder that we often overlook. Does it ever occur to us, or how often does it occur to us, that God performs wonders for a reason? God is always at work in our lives. And do we ever ask, to what end? When God works in and around us, what are the implications for us? I've called this wonderful work because when a wonder happens, well, there's work to be done. Um, here's a couple pictures of Galilee. Here's the first one. Uh, that's the Sea of Galilee, uh, the water there is. And uh, Bethsaida was on the Sea of Galilee. And you see in the background there a hillside of Galilee. Um, in verse 12, the apostles say that they are in a remote place. The original Greek for remote place is Aremos Tapos. And this picture here that you see, interestingly enough, is literally called Aremos Tapos today. Now, I'm not claiming that this is where the miracle took place. But these pictures give you a good idea of what it looked like. Uh, please go back to the first picture. Um, imagine... 5,000 people on this hillside. Again, the 5,000 was only men. So let's just double it with the women and children, and let's say it's five to 10,000. And I want you to get a picture of what that could look like on this hillside. Because it's on a hillside like this one that Jesus gives these instructions. Now imagine, you are the 12, you are one of the 12, carrying out these instructions on a hillside like this one with five to 10,000 people on it. Verses 14 and 15 says, um, there were 5,000 men there, and Jesus said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And the disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Now in verse 16 Jesus takes the loaves and the fish and blesses them. And then it says he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. And then everyone eats and is satisfied. And then it says the second half of verse 17, the disciples picked up the 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now you are one of the 12. And you were a part of all of that. And the first thing that Jesus tells you is, okay, um, we got five to 10,000 people here. I need you to get them into groups of 50. Uh, there are five to 10,000 people on this hill. Have you ever tried to get a large group of people 
to break up into small groups? Have you ever done that? Like, you know, even just a group of 100, and your job is to get them into groups of 10. It is like herding cats, okay? Imagine, imagine you are one of the 12, and you are trying to get five to 10,000 people to sit in groups of 50. Yes, we're gonna feed you. We need you to get into groups of 50. No, I don't know what's on the menu. Yes, a group of 55 is fine. Get you in groups of 50. We need you to get into groups of 50. Five, zero, not 15, five, zero, 50. Because we're gonna feed you. I don't know, probably bread and fish. No, I don't know if it's gluten-free, okay? This is what you're doing. How long would it take the 12 apostles to break five to 10,000 people into groups of 50? They do not have microphones. They have to walk up and down the hillside trying to explain to everybody what is going on. That's gonna take at least an hour, at least. So however long it took, they finally get everyone into groups. And I'm really, I'm still not sure it's more impressive. The feeding of all those people or the fact they actually got them into groups of 50. Next, they have to distribute the food. It says Jesus gave his disciples the bread and fish to distribute to the people. Now imagine what that was like. <sighs> okay, Jesus, we got everyone into groups. And Jesus says, okay, here's the food. Go pass it out. Did, did he just say pass it out? Jesus, can't you just miraculously produce the food in the groups? Why do we have to pass it? No, you have to pass it out. Okay, 5,000 people in groups of 50 is 100 groups. 10,000 people in groups of 50 is 200 groups. The apostles have to take food to at least 10 groups each. And again, they're spread out on a hillside. Some disciples walk up the hill, then down the hill, and then some disciples walk down the hill and then up the hill. And how much food can they carry at one time? How many trips are they making to each group? How long does it take to distribute that food? You know, I, it's like a vendor at a Major League Baseball game. Bread and fish here, get your bread and fish. Walking up and down, how long are they doing that for? That's at least another hour, right? So at least an hour to get everyone into groups, and then at least an hour to get everyone to serve, and they finally get done, and Jesus says, go get the leftovers. <laughs> they have to collect the leftovers. I can imagine the apostles, we have to get the leftovers? Can't the people just take the leftovers home? Why do we have to collect them? So after walking up and down the hill, getting everyone into groups, and then walking up and down the hill to get everyone food, now they have to walk up and down the hill with a basket collecting the leftovers. And the passage says that they collected 12 baskets full of food, which means every apostle ended up with a full basket. Now, hopefully leftovers weren't like partially eaten food, but regardless, they had to go and collect it. What's the lesson <laughs> that Jesus is instilling in his disciples in all of this. On the hillside in Galilee, when he fed the 5,000, it's called wonderful work because when God does something wonderful, it's time to get to work. God doesn't do miracles to show off. God doesn't do miracles to simply strengthen our faith, although it does do that. God does miracles because he has a plan. And the miracle's a part of the plan. 
And so when God shows up and does the miraculous, it means it's time to get the work because God has a purpose for you. Some of us have survived horrible accidents. And for those of us that haven't had to survive a horrible accident, what we tend to forget when we hear that the person is survived, has survived the horrible accident, we're rejoicing they're doing physical rehab. And that's a lot of work. Or you get cancer and God heals you. We're rejoicing, but the person who got healed probably still to go through chemotherapy or radiation or surgery, that's a lot of work. Some of us have difficulty having children, and so we pray and God gives us biological children, or we pray and God gives us adopted children. Either way, when God gives us children, we have to raise them. That's a lot of work. In February, we gave the mustard seed over 4,000 food items. God used us to provide food for the mustard seed to give out, and the mustard seed is thrilled for God's provision. But they also have a lot of work to do to get that food out. 4,000 items. They had to collect it, load it, take it to the mustard seed, unload it. They had to organize it. And they have to have a system for getting the food out. That's a lot of work. And they are grateful for what God has done because they feel like they have a sense of purpose, that this is what God wants them to do. But it's a lot of work. When God shows up in our lives and does the miraculous or works within the everyday happenings of our life, when that happens, get ready to work because God has a plan. It's a wonderful plan, yet the wonderful will require us to get going. Yes, we will celebrate and we will be thankful, but we also need to ask, hmm, what is God up to here? What is he calling me to do now? If you experience healing, why? Because not everyone gets healed. Or if you need a job and get a job, why did God give you that job? It wasn't just for you. If the everyday circumstances of life work out in your favor, God did that for you, and it's good to ask, what is God up to? This lesson of wonderful work will reappear in Scripture over and over again. One of the times this lesson reappears for the disciples, for the apostles, is Acts chapter 2. The miracle is the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, and they declare the wonders of God in various languages. And so this diverse crowd gathers because they all hear their own languages being spoken. And Peter raises his voice and addresses this crowd, and he preaches the good news to them. And then this is what happens next. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all, all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, given the lesson of wonderful work, 
that when God does something wondrous, that means there's work to be done. <laughs> what jumps out to you in this passage? Those who accepted his message were baptized. How many baptisms did they do that day? 3,000. 3,000. How in the world do you baptize 3,000 people on the spot in one day? Hmm. Well, we're going to have to get them all into groups, okay? <laughs> right? And then each apostle is going to have to take and baptize them. And then you're going to have to double back and then tell them what's next. Hey, we are going to meet here every day in the temple courts. The disciples know it has been instilled in them that when God performs a wonder, get ready to work. When God is at work in us, it is time to get us working. It is time for us to get working. And the good news is that God is always up to something. God is always doing something wonderful, whether we realize it or not. And while we have limitations and we get tired, God doesn't. And remember, God's not a tyrant. God is the God of the Sabbath, which means he wants us to take systematic breaks. But God is always up to something in us and around us. Psalm 121 says, Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The God who will neither slumber nor sleep is watching over us. And so we celebrate and we are thankful and we ask, what does God have for us next? Please pray with me. And Lord, we are grateful and thankful. And Lord, we do celebrate and have joy when we see what you are up to in our lives. Lord, in the times that you do the miraculous, um, we are really grateful. And Lord, I would ask that you give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear when you are at work in our everyday life. And maybe we don't always see what you're doing. But Lord, I would ask that in our rejoicing, that you would give us the wisdom and clarity to at least ask the question, what is it you're up to? And Lord, help us be sensitive to the Spirit's leading as you invite us um, to, again, join you in what it is you are doing. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. And receive God's blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.